Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. As we all know now, the day of the Doctor, Doctor Who episode has heard, and John Hurt was not an official Doctor. I called it. Moving on. But that did happen, though, did it? <laughs> I don't know. It's not been on yet. One of us was right. <laughs> One of us wasn't. And I don't recall it being you. Well, it's not heard yet. So, as, as we record this... So well, well as, as we recorded, Knight of the Doctor has heard, and Paul McGann regenerated into John Hurt, proving that I was right. He regenerated into a stock footage John Hurt from another film. <laughs> so that doesn't count. Alright, alright, maybe he was a doctor. <laughs> the hell? Never happy, are you, until you're right? Well, pain in the asteroids. That pretty much covers it for the intro this week. I've got nothing. No, I've got nothing. I'm reading Dead Man. It's dead good. It's, it's dead good. good. <laughs> <laughs> see what I did there? I do, yeah. It's clever, that one, sir. It's dead good, man. It's dead good, man. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mrs. Mrs. Leyland. We appreciate your patronage. Bring me food, woman! Oh, are you supposed to do that hand gesture? It's a good job it's an audio medium. <laughs> uh, should we go straight into emails? Okay. Email this week, our first one, is David Gutierrez. It's called War Crimes, War Drums, War Whatever. I was wondering what your thoughts were and if you plan to cover the War Drums game's third part of the story whose name I can't recall, Batman story. I've never read it. I've never read it. So that would probably be a no then. Yeah. We may do. I mean, we do have... We still want to cover Hush mm. at some point. And a lot of people keep saying, you ever going to do No Man's Land? you ever going to do No Man's Land? Yeah. And I think it's a great idea because No Man's Land is fantastic. And then I look that it's four big fat trade paperbacks mm. and think it would probably take us as long as the story takes probably. which is a year well I've, I've read quite a lot of negative reviews and opinions on the war stuff have you I've never read it I've ne- but I've never read Bruce Wayne murderer fugitive mm. was that it was there another bit of that Bruce Wayne murderer fugitive I've goes on the run for a crime he didn't commit probably right no because I've never read the myth again yeah I've never read that either but they are doing another Trade paperback release of that storyline. Yeah. Similar to what they did with No Man's Land. The Bruce Wayne murderer stuff is going to have all the stuff in that wasn't in the previous trade paperbacks. Which, to me, defeats the point of doing trade paperbacks in the first yeah, place. Collect if you're going to cut chunks of the story out. Yeah. So, I mean, it gives them a new revenue stream. We can publish it all. <laughs> Again. Maybe they plan that far ahead. So, I mean, there's a part of me that's like glad I never got all the No Man's Land trades originally and never bought Murderer Fugitive. Yeah. on the run for a crime he didn't commit which was volume 3 <laughs> or if it wasn't it should have been that was a long winded way of saying we don't know David <laughs> wasn't it <laughs> uh, David continues it seemed to me 
It was a long way to go to get Stephanie Brown out of the Robin suit and into the ground. Personally, I was a big fan of hers as Robin. If I recall correctly, her appointment to the role was made by Bruce as a way to get back at Tim for something. Not sure if that's correct. Did Tim quit being Robin? Uh, I don't know, because I've never read it. Well, and he... I know very little about spoiler. Uh, Stephanie Brown. I know that Tim Drake... Well, I'm pretty sure that Tim Drake was always Robin until Bruce Wayne died. Yeah. And he became Red Robin. Right, okay, fair enough. Um, I, I'm not aware of it, to be honest with you. David continues, Spoiler was interesting in that she was one imperfect member of the extended Bat Clan. Unlike everyone else, she came from a broken family. Her dad was the clue master. She got knocked up and gave her kid up for adoption. She made tons of mistakes and really wanted nothing more than to fit in. She's exactly the unnecessary risk Batman, Bruce Wayne version, saw her to be. He tries to shut her down and stop her, but she's a stubborn one and she returns to her vigilante ways. The fact that she becomes Robin really doesn't make much character sense. She doesn't show up at the right time like Carrie Kelly or Jason Todd or Tim Drake. She doesn't a convenient void like Cassandra Kane. She becomes a plot device. And we all know how that works out. Are you guys Calvin and Hobbes fans? Something you might dig. Are we Calvin and Hobbes fans? <laughs> I think we are. Uh, well, I'm looking at the bookshelf and we have one, two, three, four big fat Calvin and Hobbes omnibuses. And further down on the littler bookshelf, we have another two of those little trade paperbacks. So, yes, we love Calvin and Hobbes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say something I don't normally say. Go on. If you don't you like Calvin and Hobbes, shut up. <laughs> There's something wrong with you. Okay. Normally, I don't make sweeping statements like that, but doesn't everybody love Calvin and Hobbes? I like the toaster one. I just like all the. Do you know the, the the more the older you get and the more you have kids, suddenly you identify with the parents a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> that when he's just sat there reading, completely ignoring what the kids are doing and going stuff like, "That's nice, Calvin. That's totally me." <laughs> Great. <laughs> A little bit of uh, an insight into my parenting skills. He thanks us for the podcast. You're very welcome. Young Michael has even swayed me to check out that Godzilla series. Something I never thought I'd do. There you go. Yeah. So, well done for that. Influence one person. You've influenced one person. Which is more person than I've ever influenced in my entire life. So I, I guess. Fair enough. Thank you, David. We appreciate that. Um, yes. Godzilla was great. Go and read it. The artwork's brilliant. Our next email is from David Main. Apparently this week you can only email in if your name is David. Right, okay. Best Batman is the subject. Heading Andrew and Michael, you guys did it again. You're waxing poetically about the virtues of Scott Snyder's Batman run. Convinced me to purchase the trades and read them myself. I did the same thing after listening to your episode on Spider-Man Blue. I've been reading a great deal of the new 52, but resisted the Batman titles because there were so damn many of them. However, after your episode, I had a change of heart and thought I'd give it a try. I can't wait for them to get here. Anyway, another great episode and I look forward to the next one. Oh, well... Thank you very much, David. We appreciate that. We're glad that we could steer you towards something worthwhile, even if it was one of Michael's choices. Yeah. And not one of mine. You know, I, I actually could never read the new Batman stuff in trades. Why not? Because the, the uh, okay, the Knight of Owls stuff, they've collected all the tie-ins and the Batman stories in one big hardback, <laughs> right? They're all in just any any order. Any order. Dan Dio just threw them up yeah. in the air today. They landed on the floor and he said, publish them in that order. There's no chronology in them. They're all the whole issues. <laughs> right. So they're not in the correct time. Right. I don't I've never read them. See, the way I read it is I read like two pages of this issue and then three pages of the next. Just uh, he's so totally dead. He, we... Because he's got this obsessive compulsive disorder that whenever there's a crossover, he has to have it. Even yeah. though, if, except for Forever Evil, you seem to have weaned yourself off it for Forever Evil. I act 
the only time is really important to Justice League. Which we get. But we don't get Forever Evil, so we will. We're only reading the tie-ins. We'll pick it up in the fullness of time. So when he recommended to me I read, was it Night of Owls or Court of Owls? Night of Owls. He actually brought me out a reading order that actually said stuff like, pages one to three, (laughs) Batman and Robin 19. Pages three to seven, Nightwing 10. (laughs) And he actually mapped out the order that the story came in. You spent forever. That wasn't easy. Chronologically, this must take place here, and this must take place. And I'm looking at it going, dude, can I not just pick the comics up and read them? And you got all hoity, well, well you could do that. <laughs> oh, it's even worse when you get to the Joker one. There's the Batman stuff oh, in one, me. which is the main stuff, and then Joker gets his own. Doesn't he get his own series? Yeah, but like the Nightwing issues aren't in it, and they're in it. Oh, it's just I just picked them up and read them. To be honest with you, and now I've been listening to Scott Snyder on Batman and Batman. You now know that none of them matter. Yeah, he doesn't give them a, a never mind either. So I don't see why we should. Well, he said about the new Zero Year one that he really didn't want to do it, but all the writers for. The individual. Yeah, he books. pitched it as this is just me and Greg Capullo telling the new Batman story. Like Frank Miller did with Year One. Yeah. Frank Miller did Year One as four issues of Batman. That's what I want to do. And then somebody's come along and gone, No, we can do tie-ins. He, and Scott Snyder said, Go for your life, but I'm not involved. He did say recently on on his Twitter that he he didn't want to have the tie-ins, but the writers of those individual issues said, Well, no, he the, he's these. He has our ideas for mm. what we could do in them, and he was convinced. Right, okay. Because originally he just he didn't want other writers to do Batman stories that tied into it. Right. But since they all said, well, no, because we'll do a Flash story set around Zero Year, or a Green Arrow story. Or a Superman story. Because every single comic known to man is improved by an appearance by Batman. Yeah. <laughs> is, this not, is this not the business model that DC is working yeah. under? <laughs> It doesn't have Batman, it doesn't sell. How about we just rename every single title Batman and <laughs> Batman and Action Comics, yeah. Batman and Hawkman, Batman and Wonder Woman, and watch those sales figures rocket. <laughs> I hope somebody from DC is not listening to this. <laughs> they, changed, they changed DC to uh, BB, so it stands for Brave and the Bold. <laughs> oh no, just Batman Comics. <laughs> Call it BC instead of DC. <laughs> With little horns on its logo. Yeah, little, little bat ears on its logo. <laughs> Uh, another email Patrick Kokorin has emailed in the player on the other side is the name of the title Patrick from Matro Matro Patrick from Metro Detroit here again the bestest Batman stories ever told podcasts are going well and I'm using them as a checklist to go back and find some hidden gems of Batman storylines well very good because that was the point of the show Mm -hmm. I had hoped people would drop us a quick line saying what their favourite underrated Batman stories were so we could go and check them out but so far no one has Uh, I think someone... Have they? Have I just not got to that email yet? Probably. Alright, fair dues. The Gotham Knights and Legends of the Dark Knight are two series in my blind spot, but seem to have some interesting standalone stories. Yeah, I loved Gotham Knights for the first 40-odd issues, and then it became embroiled in a crossover and I stopped reading it, but I think it's very good. Legends of the Dark Knight, by its very nature, is hit and miss, because it's story arcs, and you can be affected in that if you don't like a specific creative team. Yeah it can throw you off that arc or if you don't like a specific story but the plus side of that is it's only three or four issues so if you don't like it you, the next story out may be to your taste and they're all individuals yeah and they're all, that, that was the best thing about it but looking back through some of them there were some great stories in Legends of the Dark Knight yeah. that I didn't even mention when we did Best Batman there was a, a great Razal Ghoul one 
the Joker finds the Lazarus pit. I think yeah. was the story. That was a good one. I think Chuck Dixon wrote that. And there was real. So there was some really good Legends of the Dark Knight worth checking out. And I don't think they're expensive. I think you can pick all them up for relatively cheaply. Although a lot of it doesn't seem to have been traded. Patrick continues, Mikey L's pick and analysis of Batman 666, the number of the beast, for it is a human number, <laughs> was very well done, and this is my favourite Grant Morrison Batman tale. I really love when DC goes into what-ifs with their legacy characters and gives readers a peek into possible futures. They read like elseworldish time travel stories, and I miss elseworld immensely. Finally, back to you, Andrew, and the player on the other side, Wraith character. I'm a sucker for the villains that are mirrors to the hero. It is an easy and well-worn trope in fiction, but when done correctly, very fun. Have you read any modern-day Wraith stories? I have not. Player on the other side is probably my all-time favourite Batman and you don't, story. You don't want to dilute no, character. I've talked about this with both Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey, I think, yeah. got in touch with me after we covered Player on the other side. And said, have you read the sequel? Right. And in both cases, I said to them, no. And you don't want to. And I don't want to. I don't right. want there to be a sequel. This story was perfectly told in however many pages it was. Was it a 64-page story? 24? Well, it, was, it was an annual, so it was probably 40-odd pages. It had a beginning, a middle, and an end. You never need to see that guy again. Yeah. And bringing him back is something that goes against the grain with me in stories like that. Because we've said before, I think characters like Bane should never have been brought back. Yeah. He was His purpose was to break Batman's back in the Nightfall storyline. After that, he has no purpose. Because he's never going to win again. Yeah. So the more you bring him back, the more you dilute the fact that he was the one who managed to beat Batman. And more and more, it looks like it was just a fluke that he managed it. Yeah. So for me, you have Bane in Nightfall, you never see him again. And it's the same with Doom. I think the same about Doomsday. Yeah. He should have shown up, killed Superman, and never been seen again. Because, again, every time you have a rematch with him, you go, well, how's Superman beating him this time? Yeah. Last time he killed the guy, but this time he's beaten him with no problems. So there are villains, I think. The Lizard in Spider-Man right. is another one, I think. Every Lizard story is just a variation on the first Lizard story. Until he goes, until he goes and eats his own soul. And so there's another villain that should have been left alone. Yeah. There are some great villains that are one-offs, and they should be left that way. But the problem with comics is, is its greatest strength is also its biggest problem, that it isn't one set creative team. Mm. You know, there was a time where only Stan handled the Silver Surfer, and that eventually went away, and there was... I think there was another one, I can't remember what it was, one... Wasn't Denny O'Neill the only one who was allowed to write Ra's al Ghul stories? Yeah. Ra's al Ghul stories were reserved for Denny O'Neill, I think. Right. But now, any idiot writes them. Right. So, no, I'm... I'm, I'm uh, well, let's carry on with what Patrick says. Batman Confidential had a nice short three-issue arc, Wraith, written by Tony Beddard and illustrated by Rags Morales a few years ago that was very good. Have you read the new 52 Wraith storyline in Detective? <laughs> Absolutely no. In my opinion, it was just average, much in the vein of most of the Detective comic storylines in the new 52. The core of the characters was there, but the storyline was manic and ended with a whimper. See, that's what I mean. So... I don't read Detective Comics in the New 52. For me, when we started off with the New 52, we read a lot of them, didn't we? Yeah. And slowly they've just been whittled away to Batman. Because I'll be honest, I actually found Detective Comics to be lackluster mm. in the New 52. And I found Batman and Robin to be lackluster. The only um, one I found to be of interest was Batman. Some Batman and Robin ones have been good. Uh, it's more interesting recently since Robin died. And it's a different team. Well, like it, so isn't it basically just Brave and the Bold now, then? Yeah. Essentially, that's what it is. Much, yeah. So... I'm against doing a sequel 
to the Wraith story. So I am dead set against the New 52 retelling that story. Because, and this isn't me dissing on 52. If you like the New 52, that's fine. I've said before, a lot of it just isn't to my taste. So I'm not reading it anymore. But I don't think anyone who's currently writing the New 52 would understand what that story was and what it was about. They would do something completely different with it to make it gritty and edgy. And it's, what was... Oh, I was reading the internet this week. Pitches have been asked right. for a dark and gritty booster gold comic. Okay. And I'm reading this going, DC, you know I love you, right? And some of your characters are my all-time favourites. Not every character has to be dark and gritty. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you can't tell edgy stories with the Booster Gold character. And I've never read a lot of Booster Gold, to be fair. Yeah. Most of my experience of Booster Gold comes from Justice League, where he was palling around with Thingy or Blue Beetle, and he's shot in the head. <laughs> but he seems to me that he's not necessarily a character that would lend himself to, these dark alleyways are strewn with piss. I stand alone against the victims of crime of some bull <laughs> dark city. It needs a light of gold. <laughs> I can't be the hero that it wants to be, but I can be the hero it needs. As long as they pay me sponsorship. (laughs) And it's... No. Goddamn, that guy's holding the kid hostage. Yeah. And NASCAR needs a picture by Adler. (laughs) Just remember, sponsored by NASCAR. Do you think he's... Every time he says something, do you think he says stuff like that? Buy Coke. (laughs) Thanks for saving me, Bruce Gold. Thanks, and when I get thirsty, I drink Coke. And remember, Kellogg's cornflakes are good for you. <laughs> and you just see the woman that he's served from mugging going, What? <laughs> if you never want to get run over again, kid, eat <laughs> for cornflakes in the morning. Uh, so, sorry, Patrick, we, we digressed a little bit there. So, no, no, I, I've not read the new 52 version of the Wraith storyline. Keep up the good work, fellas, and thanks for making the morning runs interesting. Well, I'm glad that you like us much more than the scenery. <laughs> I mean, it depends where you're running, obviously, but you know. Yeah. Scenery is interesting, I suppose. <laughs> Go on, we'll do another one. Next email. Look, look at all the streets strewn in piss. We've got a couple more. We'll <laughs> and look at the bright cold light. <laughs> look at Booster Gold. Why has he got Esso on his ass? <laughs> Michelin on his shoes. <laughs> oh, dear God. The subject heading is just Batman. Oh, the Batman episodes were popular. That's nice. Uh, it's from Knox Van Horn. Hello, Knox. Hey, y'all. I love it when people say y'all. Y'all. It's been a very long time since my first email, which I don't expect you to remember since it was a year ago. So I just wanted to start off by mentioning how much I... Well, we thank you for liking the show. As the only podcast... He loves the show. He loves it. And we appreciate his patronage. As the only podcast I consistently listen to... Oh, thank you very much. We appreciate that. I'm constantly being delighted by new things every week. Even if I hate the material... We don't cover stuff we hate. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, you all are so entertaining to listen to. It's irresistible. Well, we thank you very much for that. Thank you. And finally, we have the Absolute Dream Hey Kids podcast. The Caped Crusader is far and away my favourite character. And an episode all about him is just more than I could have dreamed. Have you not gone back and listened to all the Nightfall stuff, Knox? Because we've done a lot of talking about Batman fact, on this show. We're a Batman podcast. We are a Batman podcast on occasion, yeah. We probably are, actually. If you go back and count all the old episodes, we've probably covered more Batman than anything else. Probably. 
It's been a long time since I can remember you covering Batman. Not long enough, some people in the crowd are saying. The one sticking out of mind is Prodigal, so it's great to hear your thoughts on the greatest Batman stories. The gap in my Batman knowledge and reading has always been very Silver Age, so it's great to get some good suggestions on reading from that era. Also very glad on the coverage of Whatever Happened to the Caped Crusader, one of my personal favourites. I understand the objections to it not being perfect, but honestly I don't think I mind all that much. Haven't gotten to the massive second episode yet, but definitely looking forward to it. Great work, and I'll email more more frequently in future. Well, thank you, Knox. We appreciate that we are the only show that you listen to. In fact, you know when we make these mythical t-shirts and we have the quotes on that we like and um, Sufficiently Silly was still my favourite. I like that one a lot. But I think the only podcast I listen to, Knox Van Horn, I think we'll have that on the poster. (laughs) What do you think? And on the back's like, uh, disclaimer, might be paraphrasing. (laughs) (laughs) Quotes from listeners may be paraphrased to paint us in a more favourable light. <laughs> listeners may not actually remember saying what we said they said. We reserve the right to take listeners' quotes and corrupt them to our own needs. <laughs> you all signed the agreement, right, listeners? Final one that we're going to cover tonight is the mighty Luke Giaconetti. Some say he emails into the show every week. Mm-hmm. And some say we appreciate that immensely. But there's some no say, subject heading. Some say we don't read every email every week. <laughs> well, we don't. But they come in every week and I always like getting them. So, but that's just frankly lazy, Luke. No subject heading. Unless it's a deep, uh, meaningful... It's a meta-commentary yeah, on the nature of Grant Morrison's writing and subject. He actually subtext. called it no subject. <laughs> Deliberately. Yeah. All right, fair All right. Dear Bat Andy and Michael Wonder... I quite like that. <laughs> what are you? I'm Bad Andy. This <laughs> <laughs> is quite a strike fear into the of criminal. <laughs> Strikes fear into no one, doesn't it? Could be worse, I could be Bat Andy Murray. <laughs> Once more into the Bat fray we go with more empirical, well, anecdotal evidence of the width and breadth of the stories which can be told about the Batman. And just like last episode, there is such a nice variety here, and it was nice hearing about all of these comics I'd not read. Well, we're glad we were sufficiently entertaining, even though you'd not read the comics. The idea of Crazy Quilts being Robin's nemesis, continues Luke, is along the same lines as Killer Moth being Batgirl's nemesis, I think. And frankly, I would like to get back to those sorts of relationships. I mean, there's nothing thematically appropriate about Batman's nemesis being the Joker. Bats and clowns are not natural enemies or anything like that. But that's just my thought. I don't know if I've ever read a story with Crazy Quilt in it, other than a cameo appearance, but I will give the character a thumbs up for the episode of the Batman Brave and the Bold you guys mentioned. While some folks did not like that show, one of its strengths, in my opinion, was to take seemingly unworkable characters like Crazy Quilt and give them a chance to shine. The concept of Quilt as a deranged artist fits in with the rest of the Bat Rogues quite nicely, I think. Yeah, we'll... I've not seen every episode of Brave and the Bold, but most of them I've enjoyed when I've watched it. Yeah. I didn't watch it religiously, but when I caught one, I always liked it. Any with Aquaman in were worth watching. Yeah, I saw, um, there was one that did Final Crisis, but in a Brave and the Bold version really? of Final Crisis. Awesome. Which was absolutely horrible. Was it? Yeah. I didn't, I thought the, the Zurena Batman one was, wasn't very good. That was great. But, people, but you loved it, so. <laughs> but the, 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 the Final Crisis one was it seeded in an earlier episode where the question is like flying through space being attacked and it's like oh dark side's coming 
And then they did Final Crisis in Brave and the Bone. And then it was just another episode that had nothing to do with it. Yeah. And then an episode later was with a Bwahaha Justice League. And then Darkseid <laughs> shows up with these legions of little guys. Parademons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, Batman and the Bwahaha Justice League, like, beat them all up That's single-handedly. Cool. And then, they, like, Darkseid goes, oh, I'm just, oh, I'll go that away. That sounds now. better than Final Crisis. <laughs> it really isn't, though. <laughs> I like the one with John Wesley Shippen. They did an episode with the Flash in it, and John Wesley Shipp played Reverse Flash. Yeah. Oh, that was a nice bit of stunt casting. I like that a great deal. Uh, Luke rounds up, well, I really did enjoy your two-part special covering all sorts of Batman. I do have one complaint, which I would like to voice right here. (coughs) All the complaining of the five-year timeline as something which Dan DiDio made up. Two words. Zero hour. Just saying is all. Thanks, fellas. Luke. I don't think we ever said Didio made it up. I just think we said he was the one who championed the five-year timeline. But yeah, Zero Hour did kind of compress everything into five or six years, didn't it? Yeah. Didn't quite seem as as egregious then, though, did it? No. But, you know, it does seem to have been largely left alone now, that, doesn't it? As they they fill in the gaps and stuff. Thanks, fellas, Luke. P.S. 150 episodes... Dang, don't I feel lazy now? Well, don't. You will get them. I have every faith that you will get to 150 episodes. Okay. We'll knock emails on the head. And after this commercial break for a podcast that you should be listening to, Knox Van Horn, because I, I don't know what's going to be in here, but I'm sure it's a good one, uh, we'll be right back. Thank you very much. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Long-time listeners to the show will know that, by and large, the majority of the comics we pick are of the modern age, and are titles that, in some way, mean something personal to us, an emotional connection or a nostalgic fondness. Of late, however, we have branched out into comics and properties we don't know a great deal about. These episodes have not only been very fulfilling for us creatively, but they also seem to have been well-received, which is always gratifying. But when you're always on the lookout for new topics for the show, there is a feeling of wanting to shake it up now and again. Otherwise, you'd be listening to a Grant Morrison Spider-Man podcast. Ideas for the show come from strange places. Speaking solely for me, 
I have a ring binder book, which is here. I've posted a picture on Facebook of it. I have three. I have three. One of them <laughs> I'm currently working. Well, I can resist them. Right. One's the Superman one, one's a generic Marvel one, and one's Amazing Spider-Man 100. So I just bought all of them. But, and slowly I, I pencil in ideas of things we may be interested in covering, and Michael throws ideas out at me, and sometimes we cover them quickly. Others may take a little while. I think that's like fair to say. Wolverine. Like Wolverine, which took us two and a half years. Other times, a listener will spark an idea, and even other times, it'll be something we want to talk about urgently. Still further times, something we've done on an earlier show will cause the little grey cells to start turning, and we'll think, wouldn't it be cool if we did? And that's where this series came from. One of the much maligned eras of comics is the Silver Age, especially with some modern fans with a number of websites devoted exclusively to just how stupid some of this stuff is. It seems generally discounted as being a rather silly era of our favourite medium, generally consisting of stories about Batman donning multicoloured outfits and fighting aliens on other planets, and Superman performing silly childish pranks on Lois Lane to prevent her from learning he's secretly Clark Kent. However, when we covered the Silver Age on Happy Birthday Superman episode 3, we were both quite surprised by the depth of emotion in some of these stories, and in some cases, how bleak they were. So we've decided to devote a series of shows to something that, while it's not exactly out of our comfort zone, isn't exactly in it. A series of shows devoted to the silver age of both Marvel and DC Comics. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right, but Michael and Andrew, there's more to the silver age than Marvel and DC... Well, yes, that's true, but despite our occasional walks on the wild side, we are still at heart mainstream comics fans. Michael may be a little more to the left than I am in terms of his wacky likingness, Yeah. but for the most part, we'll, we like the mainstream, don't we? Maybe one day we'll do a Robert Crumb or an EC Comics show, but not today. We also want to contrast the approach of the big two to the comics of the time. What was the same, what was different, and which, 50-odd years later, hold up the best. With that out of the way, I suppose a brief explanation of what exactly the Silver Age was would be in order. The Silver Age is an era of comics that primarily were created in the Atomic Age boom of the 50s and the Space Race era of the 1960s. Out were dark, gritty, vigilante heroes, and in were science fiction-based adventures, and a return to heroism and during do. The Silver Age is generally regarded to have started in 1956, with the publication of Showcase Issue 4, and ended circa 1970 with... Well, there's the rub. Some say the night Gwen Stacy died from Amazing Spider-Man issue 121 in 1973 is the end of the Silver Age, but I tend to think this is too late. Others say it's Fantastic Four issue 102 from 1970, as the FF's co-creator Jack Kirby quit the book he helped make the world's greatest comics magazine. However, my personal opinion is that the Silver Age finished with the man who started it, Julius Schwartz, and the introduction of a more socially orientated Green Lantern and Green Arrow in 1970. It's appropriate that the man who brought about the Silver Age would also bring about its demise. What do you think the Silver Age ended? Uh, uh, Excellent, when, good. When I'm... the Bronze Age started. <laughs> <laughs> and you waited until I took a sip of drink to do that. I did, yeah. Thank you very much. I almost spat all over my keyboard. If you were to create a list of the most important men in comics, the, the aforementioned Julius Schwartz would not only be on that list, he'd probably be right near the top. 
Born in 1915, Schwartz pioneered the science fiction fanzine Time Traveller, as well as being a literary agent for the likes of Alfred Bester, Robert Bloch, Ray Bradbury and H.P. Lovecraft. He became an editor at DC Comics, then called All American Comics, in 1944. In 1956, flagging sales had led to the almost complete demise of the superhero comic, with only Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman still being published. Schwartz, ever on the lookout for new stories, put forth the idea of revamping some of the company's old ideas in a radical new way. After all, research had shown that the average turnaround on comics readers of that time was five years, so any old concepts that were revived that were older than five years would be new to this generation of readers. Schwartz first suggested reviving a character called The Flash. Taking the character name and little else from the original comic books, Schwartz suggested re-envisioning the character in a more modern context, paying more attention to the science fiction aspects of the character and plots that could rely heavily on science, or at least, invented science. Schwartz assigned the gig to writer Robert Kaniger and artist Carmine Infantino, and they would inadvertently launch not only a new movement in comics, but an all-new age. Showcase issue 4 was cover dated September-October 1956 and featured two stories featuring The Revived Flash, Mystery of the Human Thunderbolt and The Man Who Broke the Time Barrier. The cover has become a much reprinted and homaged image showing a man in red and yellow running through a film strip. Presenting The Flash, runs the copy. Whirlwind Adventures of the Fastest Man Alive. The Comics Code Authority stamp is almost larger than both the title of the magazine and the title of the character. We are only concerning ourselves with the first tale, and my copy is from The Superheroes, Volume 1, Issue 8, cover dated 1981. That's it. No month, nothing. 1981. That was the only Flash comic that year. It, the Superheroes was an anthology book. Right. So it would all, it started publishing Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. Right. And invariably there was a Superman and Batman story in every month and then the third title rotated. Apart from months when they published a Justice League story. Because right. Superman and Batman were tended to be in them. Yeah. The other two strips tended not to be Superman and Batman in those issues. I think this was the first time they printed a Flash story. And as such, it was the first time I read it. The cover is painted by Alan Craddock and has the Flash racing a train as Superman flies above. They must be in the UK, which was very exciting for me as a child because they're racing an old intercity train. It's glorious and I'll put it on Facebook for you all to check out. Right. What do you think of the cover of the superheroes, Michael? Um, it's, 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 okay. Is that all I'm getting off you? It's awesome, it's fully painted. It's the Flash racing against Superman in England. That's an intercity train. I know, but it looks a bit weird because of that. No, it doesn't, it looks awesome. It looks like it should have a sign on it saying, oh, such a such a council wants you to take public <laughs> transport. Travel by public transport. It's the American way, except they're not in America. It'll get you to such a such a place in a Flash. Oh, I do like that. <laughs> I don't, your tagline's better than mine. That was brilliant. That was absolutely fantastic. Bolton to Manchester in a flash. <laughs> and what do you think of the cover to showcase number four? Um, it's it's very stiff. It's it's good, but it is very kind of stiff, and there's a lot going it, there's a lot going on in it without there actually being anything on it. There's nothing actually going on in it. It's the flash running. Yeah, I know. Through a film strip. With all the different flashes that are on it. Yeah, I like it. I, I agree with you. And certainly the flash on the Alan Craddock painted cover. 
is a lot more muscular than that guy, isn't he? Yeah. He doesn't look particularly muscular on that cover. That's just some cosplayer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It is just some cosplayer. Way to wipe out the entire Silver Age. <laughs> yeah. It's just some cosplayer. That's Wally West, that is. Yeah. Before, before a crisis happened. Wally West. Wally West doesn't exist yet. Does he, was he not born yet? Yeah, he wasn't in the comet yet. I don't know if he was born. Well, he could do some Bertal and time travel. He could, yeah, that's very true. Mystery of the Human Thunderbolt was written by Robert Kaniger. The penciler was Carmine Infantino, and it was inked by Joe Kubert. Police scientist Barry Allen munches on a sandwich and drinks his homogenised milk whilst chuckling over the adventures of comic book hero The Flash. He puts the comic down, wondering what it would be like to be the fastest man alive, and returns to work casting an eye out of the window at the electrical storm that rages over the city. As Barry is working near a shelf of every chemical known to science, a bolt of lightning smashes through the window, hitting the chemicals and bathing Barry with an unknown combination of said chemicals. Dazed and confused, Barry leaves for the day, only to miss the taxi he needs to get home, and he starts to run after it. Within seconds, Barry has sped past the speeding taxi. After stopping off at a diner where he catches a waitress's falling tray of food, Barry decides to sleep on it, and comes to the conclusion that it must of all have a rational explanation, because he's a scientist. However, when he meets his girlfriend Iris West for a dinner date, he sees a bullet speeding towards her and manages to shove her out of the way, making him realise this is no fantasy. Iris's near death was at the hands of the Turtle Man, nicknamed the slowest man on earth, and Barry whips up a costume and decides to bring the Turtle Man in himself, because that's just how people rolled in the 1950s. He speeds after the Turtle Man after hearing of his most recent crime on the police band, but Turtle Man is expecting him, and after eluding the Flash, he makes his getaway in a rowboat. The Flash borrows a speedboat, but it proves ineffective, having been sabotaged by Turtle Man, so Flash races after him, running so fast, he runs on water. Creating a vortex, he surrounds the rowboat and returns the Turtle Man to the authorities, whereby the press nickname him The Flash. And that's just crying out for da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
just based on the TV show. I hope that when he shows up in Arrow, he's going to be wearing his costume. I'll be very disappointed Maybe if he isn't. Maybe he's just going to wear like a, a red hoodie. No, that, they did that in Smallville. Yeah, red Converse. I don't dislike Smallville. I've actually grown to quite like it more watching the Sci-Fi Channel reruns. But, you know, just one costume would have been nice. Well, when they did the Justice Society, they actually wore costumes. Yeah, they did, yeah. So that was pretty cool. But the Flash in a costume would have been cool. But they did, did they do Bart in Smallville? I don't know. He Probably. was only a kid, wasn't he? Mm. I don't remember if it was Bart or Wally. I can't remember. I still think that's a pretty modern design, featuring neither overpants or capes, which were standard superhero costume tropes of the time. But I did like that he, he does follow the superhero standard of having an emblem on his chest, in this case a lightning bolt, which is a nod to the Golden Age Flash, as are the earpieces, which are themselves a throwback to the Roman god Mercury. I did like that the, the text piece on the splash page tells us that at some point the Flash outran his own shadow. How does that work then, Ted? That's Peter Pan. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Very clever. What, did you, what do you think of the Flash? Um, oh, what do I think of him? Yeah, what do you think of the Flash as a character? He's one of the. F- I mean, we did the Matt Wade stuff, but as a rule, yeah. I don't think we've covered the Flash very much. I, I've really only read um, the recent Jeff Johns stuff and the early Francis Manipal stuff. See, I can only imagine to read the... T- that is a, a dramatically different costume to what you're used to for a... If you think about it, at this point, if you're reading comics, 1959, yeah. the Marvel Universe doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. So you've none of that. You've got Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. Yeah. Superman and Batman's costume basically follows the same template. Chest emblem, overpants, cape. Yeah. The Flash doesn't have any of that. The cowl, I suppose you could argue, is similar to Batman in that it's one of those half-face mask things which yeah. Batman wore. But in every other respect, that is a completely different costume. But it's very similar at the same time. Well, it's still a skin-tight bodysuit in many ways, but it, it can't be tight, Yeah, can it? I mean, we don't learn in the course of the story what exactly Barry makes this costume from. And I doubt it's wool <laughs> or lycra, because lycra didn't exist in 1959. I still think that's a remarkably good costume design. And it works exceptionally well, even now. And I think the TV show showed that it works quite well in live action. Yeah. It's not one of those costumes that looks stupid. I mean, the only thing they changed for the TV show, they made his boots red as well instead of yellow. Right. But having the yellow boots did lead to one of the greatest flash scenes ever, where he super speed kicks the crap out of Green Lantern because his boots are yellow. Fair enough. And as we all know, Green Lantern's allergy... Is, is used to be. It used to be yellow. Well, John's got rid of that straight away, didn't he? The first thing he did, yeah. yeah so, but I thought that was pretty cool, because his boots are yellow. He's kicked the crap out of Green Lantern. Yeah. <laughs> Another nod to the past is the villain. The Turtle Man was a villain of the Golden Age Flash. Yeah. I presume Barry didn't read that issue. Because <laughs> he would have known that, wouldn't he? He would have gone, wait a minute, I know this guy. Maybe they were seed in the um, Earth 1 and Earth 2. Even back in the 40s? Yeah. I kind of doubt it. <laughs> don't think so. Uh, the story opens in media res with a radar station operative being surprised at monitoring a ground-moving object that is breaking the sound barrier. It's largely redundant, paying no importance into the story. You don't even get that scene again in the story, do you? No. It, it gets mentioned. At this point, this is where the ground radio people picked up the flash and then they move on. Yeah. And you're like, well, what was the point of that then? You could have eliminated that entire top half of page two and it wouldn't matter. Maybe that's the pre-credit sequence. 
Possibly. It does work as a pre-credit sequence if you were going to make this into a TV show. Yeah. Doesn't it? Barry's dialogue when he's reading the Flash comic on the bottom of page two about having speed. Supersonic speed. Undreamed of speed. You no, know, he doesn't sound like... Um, he doesn't sound like William Shatner yet. Not yet. Later on he does. Yeah. You pointed that out when you read it, didn't he? I actually thought that dialogue was incredibly on the nose. <laughs> um, what would it be like to have undreamed of speed? Hmm, I wonder. Gee, what do you think is going to happen in two pages' time? <laughs> for the most part, though, the dialogue in this was pretty good. Yeah. For the era that it was written, I just felt that was, was a bit too much. He wasn't slow in this. I thought the big thing about his character was that he was always slow and always late. But is he not late for his date with Iris in this? He could be, but they don't make the deal out of, oh, he's always late, but he's the fastest man alive. So oh, right. I see. Yeah, they don't make the big... Stanley irony yeah. thing of it. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Fair enough, then. Why are you always so late? Why are you so slow? Right. Iris actually says that to him. On the nose! <laughs> yeah, I know, maybe kids were needed it pointed out a bit more back then. I don't know. Uh, Barry being a comic fan will actually be a character point in later iterations of the character, won't it? And it's here just to acknowledge that Barry is influenced by his heroics of comic book heroes. The issue he's reading... Is cover dated January and appears to be issues 15 or 13. You can't quite tell, can you? No. The speech balloon covers the issue numbers, but it does look like the bottom of a 5 or the bottom of a 3. Flash Comics issue 13 does indeed have a January cover date right. from 1941. But according to the really rather excellent Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the cover actually featured Hartman. Plus points for them actually picking a January comic that did actually come out in January with that issue number. Fair yeah. play to them. Right. Somebody did the research. But the cover's completely wrong. Fair enough. Alright, it does beg the question as well, what the hell Barry is doing with a 15-year-old comic book? But given that I read this story in a 32-year-old <laughs> magazine, and you read it in The Greatest Flash Stories Ever Told, which was a 1991 trade paperback... <laughs> Maybe we should just move on. Maybe we should. And gloss over that and accept that maybe Barry collects comics and had this in a, a little bag and board yeah, yeah, at yeah. home. Should we accept that? Could be. Yeah. Alright, let's go on. Do you not think that having um, Jay Garrick come back as as the Flash mm. in Earth, Earth 2... The Flash of Two Worlds. ...takes away that kind of cool thing that he was inspired by a comic... Because then the yes. whole inspiration from the comic doesn't matter anymore because he's a real person now. Yeah, but he... See, I suppose it all depends on whether you grew up thinking that the multiverse was cool or whether you grew up thinking the multiverse was a hindrance. Hmm. I always thought the multiverse was cool. Yeah. And it never gave me any problems as a kid. Although, I did like that Marvel didn't have anything like that. Marvel's continuity was a straight line at <laughs> that point. Yeah. Whereas DC's... I can understand how... Having a, a Superman who was 40 or 50 on Earth 2 and a regular one on Earth 1 yeah. may have been confusing. I do like that he is inspired by the comics because that places him purely in our world where superheroes only exist in comics. Yeah. But yeah, by meeting Jay Garrick later, it does. But see, DC did that a lot. Superman met Julius Schwartz yeah. and Kurt Swan. I don't recall if any of the other heroes met their comic book creators. Mm. I mean, there's an issue of Brave and the Bull with Jim Aparo in it, yeah. but I don't remember if Batman meets him. Whereas in, D in the Marvel Universe, Stan and Jack went to Sue and Reed's wedding. Yeah. They got turned away, 
but they went. So yeah, it's just a different approach. But I did like that he was he was influenced by comics. Mm. I thought that was pretty cool. Imagine if when uh, in in the Flash of Two Worlds and Barry Allen finally met his hero, the guy he idolised, and he turned out to be a right turned out to be a right douche. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, Mister Flash. Can you sign my comic? I'm a big fan, and I was a superhero just like Go you. Go away, kids! You're bugging me. <laughs> Go in and, like Barry goes home and burns all of his flash <laughs> sets fire to all his flash comics <laughs> <laughs> or sells them on a prototype eBay yeah. for a lot of money you know but I wonder if current day Barry Allen still has all those 1940s comic books <laughs> that'd be worth a fun wouldn't be a bloody police scientist I'd be selling me comics not anymore um, there never was a Jay Garrick <laughs> who's in Earth 2 then is there not a Jay Garrick in the flash in Earth 2 probably is but our Barry was never inspired by his comics. Was he not? Who no. was he inspired by now then? He, he just... He, he got hit by a bolt of lightning. I just and just became the Flash. Some guy called Reverse Flash, so... Right, I'll have to reread Flash Rebirth then. Because we keep talking about covering that, that. That doesn't even matter anymore, though. Oh, just like, so is Flash Rebirth been negated by the New 52? Flash Rebirth caused Flashpoint to happen. Yeah. But we're not quite sure if it still happened or not. Right. Okay, fine, fine, head hurts. <laughs> so you could argue then that this origin story still works in the New 52. Yeah. Because there's nothing uh, to say there aren't Flash comics in the New 52. I guess. So maybe that's what But if done. Barry's reading them, go, my God, these are bleak and depressing comics, and oh, what, Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman die in the first issue? What? <laughs> the origin pages, which are really only pages <laughs> three through seven, are really quite cool. And were adapted very faithfully into the Flash TV series pilot in 1990. The scene where he runs to catch the taxi I thought was fantastic. Really magnificently done. Three panels show his increased speed. The first one he's just kind of trotting. And then the second one the pace picks up. And then the third one it's just speed lines. Yeah. I thought that was brilliant. I really did like that. Just all close-ups of his feet. His shoes are fine and intact though. Yeah, well, that wouldn't be added until later on. That was a Wally West thing, wasn't it? Yeah. That he runs so fast, the friction burns off all his clothes and stuff. That was an addition I didn't mind. Yeah. I quite like that. I thought that was quite good. I, I like how they have to point out that Elmark Shelf is every chemical known to science. <laughs> Not man, science. Every chemical. <laughs> every chemical known to science. Every single one of them. See, I always prefer the... I'm sure I cannot, for the life of me, remember where I read this or if I made this up. But in my head... I had it that he'd received a huge batch of chemicals from somewhere. Yeah. And he was analysing and cataloguing them. So he didn't even know what they were when the lightning strike hit him. Which I always preferred because it meant that that couldn't be duplicated. It was a one-off accident. Yeah. It was that batch of unknown chemicals hitting him in that precise combination that caused this. But the DC universe didn't work like that. Mm. The DC universe worked that this exact same thing happened to Wally West. Yeah. And you're like, what are the odds? <laughs> I mean, really. I, I, in the, I don't know if I'm making that up, so if the lovely listeners know, but I'm sure I distinctly remember that the chemicals were un, unchecked and you didn't know what they all were. So it's not like somebody could come along and duplicate this. Yeah. Because he didn't even know what the chemicals were himself. So, I don't know where I'm remembering that from, but whatever. And then he gets the superpower to turn into uh, William Shatner. Yeah, Lightning. later on, he does. It certainly is. Unpredictable. <laughs> it knocked me over. But it didn't scratch the cabinet. Then it smashed only certain of the chemicals. And gave me a bevan. 
there is a staccato delivery to that panel that you're like, where the hell's that come from? Is it supposed to be implying that he's woozy and groggy? Could be, yeah. And he's not doing any William Shatner impersonation, you know, seven years before William Shatner would become famous. It could possibly be, though, yeah. <laughs> This speed thing is also the first of three moments in this comic that would be ripped off for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, with this being superficially similar to the scene in the first film, where Peter Parker rushes to catch the school bus. Yeah. So remember, he catches up with it, and then he sticks his hand on it, and he pulls the poster off. Yeah. And that shocks him, and he falls oh, back. Oh, and the bit where he catches all yeah. the food, right? Yeah, you get where I'm going with it. Yeah. But what's not superficially similar, and is in fact just a blatant rip-off, is the next scene. In the diner, a waitress spills food and we get the first excellent demonstration of Barry's ability to slow time down from his point of view. He doesn't actually slow time down. But from his point of view, he can... I got this that he can perceive time now at a different rate to normal people. Hmm. So if something like this happens, he kind of slows down a bit. So when the woman speeds speeds up... Or he speeds up, whatever, but yeah... And he moves at super speed and he manages to catch the coffee back in the cup and the food on the tray and and everything else. This scene is identical to a scene in the first Spider-Man movie where Peter Parker does exactly the same thing. Yeah. Isn't it? That that cannot be coincidence. (laughs) It's homage if you're paying tribute to Spider-Man comic strips. Yeah. If you're taking material from The Flash, that's a rip-off. And it's... It's a bit of a pain, because now it means that a Flash film couldn't do that. Because they would be accused of ripping off Spider-Man. Yeah. Because do you remember, in the scene in Spider-Man where he rips the shirt up to reveal the Spider-Ass, there were people in Superman Returns who accused that of being a rip-off of Spider-Man. Where he does a shirt rip. Really? Yep. And you're like, no. (laughs) One of Superman's signature moves is the shirt rip. Of all comic book heroes, he is the one that, that... did he start that? He's the one who started that move, isn't he? The yeah. shirt ripped to reveal the S. So, yeah. So, I think whoever read... Whoever wrote Spider-Man, the movie, obviously yeah. read this Flash comic. Because mm. I think even the camera angles are similar. Yeah. Aren't they? Page six. Barry, the next day, calls and sees Iris for a date and sees the bullet speeding towards her. And again, Infantino and Cubert show this scene from Barry's point of view, where, again, the bullet slows down. I mean, again, Smallville would rip this off an awful lot, wouldn't they? Yeah. Where Clark, you would go into like, what was it called, that game? Max Payne. Oh, yeah. You would go into Max bullet Payne Clark. mode, yeah. And Clark would do this on Smallville all the time. He would see a bullet, and we would see it moving really slowly, the implication being we were seeing it at the speed that Clark was seeing it, yeah. and then you would see him catch it, and then everything would jolt back to normal. Mm. So Smallville would rip this off a lot. I'm kind of okay with Smallville ripping it off because that's at least a DC comic. Yeah. But I wasn't... I was, I was reading this going, I'm sure I saw this in a Spider-Man film. I, I just... The bit with the bullet is just really silly. Why? Because, okay, Iris is about to get shot in the head and Barry's panicking and he just saves him. This cop goes, Oh, sorry! I'm glad that bullet didn't hit you. Just yeah. <laughs> well, I was... I'm, I'm pretty glad it didn't hit me either. <laughs> It's just like it's just these guys just having a casual gunfight with a turtle man, and no one's no one's clearing away the uh, the, the One would wonder why the turtle man uses a gun if he's the slowest man on earth. Not even that, but why are Barry and Iris just stood there casually if there's a gunfight going on in the same street? <laughs> well, that's not even referenced anywhere else. <laughs> this bullet just randomly. 
play a piece out of nowhere. There's, there's no implication that the police have cordoned off the area. There's no implication that the other pedestrians are running for their life. In fact, just off panel, whilst Barry and Iris are just talking and meeting up, it could be a good People would be gunned even... down in the street, and Barry and Iris just stood there going, yes, other than nearly being shot, what a lovely day. <laughs> and then, and then the, oh dear. The, the, um, what is it? The what city at the end? Isn't he in? Isn't he in Star City? Yeah, Star Central City. City the Central Black, City, Central finest. City. Oh, sorry, did we shoot you? <laughs> did you almost get shot by this nasty criminal? We do apologise. We don't want all that paperwork now, would we? <laughs> I like page seven. Flash, flash. Well, he is the Flash, really, isn't he? Barry yeah. returns to his office, and he not only designs a costume and a ring to keep it in in between panels so we never even get a costume design he, he did it in between panels he's so fast yeah well this was the only place I thought this story felt a little stilted I appreciate getting into the story quickly uh, but this didn't feel as organic as say the reason Batman or Spider-Man was a costume does yeah. it? It's, it there's no real reason for him to make a costume other than this is a superhero comic yeah. and that's what they did Barry's motivations are okay. He's influenced by the heroes of his youth, but nothing he's made of, like Michael was just saying, his girlfriend was just nearly shot by a random bullet yeah. from a random criminal. So essentially, he's avoided here the thing that caused Batman to be. Well, I guess that makes this that much easier to be a modern-day origin for him. Oh, Iris was almost shot, but I don't care because I'm not married to her. Well, well that, that, that's the point I was going to make. There's no, nothing is made of the potential revenge motif. Yeah. That they could have, he nearly killed my fiance. <laughs> no, nothing's made of that, is it? He just, he just brushes that off. Yeah. He never even mentions that later. As he's pursuing Turtle Man, it's never even, I must get him for Iris. <laughs> it's, it's... I must get nothing. him, but he is slow and I am fast. Yeah, that's all it is. <laughs> he's a bad guy, I must stop him. And not, this could have given us an impetus for him adopting the identity of the Flash. Yeah. But nothing's mentioned about it. It's the TV show explained that running at super speed shredded his clothes, which is as good a reason as any for wearing that costume that he wore because it was frictionless so alright fair enough but here Barry just wears a suit because that's what people with superpowers did in the 50s yeah as a modern reader what did you think of that that he just makes a costume and away you go Uh, doesn't matter they just accept it it, he's the fastest man alive and he chases the turtle man (laughs) who's also the slowest man you know what okay give him a costume (laughs) alright I'm fine with it (laughs) alright fair enough The third Sam Sam Raimi moment happens here as well. Barry's rigged up his office radio to tap into the police band, which Peter Parker did in Spider-Man 2. Now, I know that's a bit of a stretch, but given the first two bits, I wouldn't put it past them that this was a deliberate rip-off. I've got to say as well, I love the Flash's ring. I think it's one of the coolest superhero items ever. And I think it's really sad that it's dismissal as silly is one of the stupidest ways comic book readers have lost their sense of fun. I love that that's where he keeps his, his costume. I don't see anything wrong with it at all. I totally buy that Barry could do that. I don't know why. <laughs> and neither does he. And neither does he. And I've got a flash ring, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. I've got a flash ring and a Green Lantern ring, which is quite cool. I may put a picture up if I can find it. It's in the cupboard somewhere. Page eight. We get the first time Barry runs down a wall and breaks the sound barrier, which were cool. Don't yeah. get me wrong, but Schwartz has paid a lot of attention to the science part of his stories, but completely ignores that running at supersonic speeds in a built-up area would destroy all the windows. Well, especially when he breaks the sound barrier, there'd be a lot of 
smashing going on though. Nothing else even moves. No, no, no. There's, like, there's two cars at the side of him that just sit there quite happily. Yep. Nothing. <laughs> just someone else breaking. So did we room. did we pay attention to the science fiction aspects when it suited us? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. I mean, obviously it's science fiction. Yeah, but then there's a the bit where it's oh he's he's broken the sound barrier, nothing happens. But later on, he's running that super speed on water, and the boat's moving further away from him yeah. because of that. So they pay attention to it when they want to pay attention. Yeah, when to it's it. convenient. But here they, they just ignore it. Yeah, <laughs> all right, fair enough. I can forgive that. The Flash arrives at the bank vault only for the Turtle Man to have scampered without any of the money. Money that is apparently just stacked. Yeah. In the bank, it's just big piles of money. No wonder they were robbed a lot. <laughs> it's not even like it's it's stored in, in any in, way in sequentially. Vault, yeah. yeah, I mean it's in a bank vault. Yeah, it runs through the vault door, but it's not like this is a this is the five dollar bills. These are the ten. It's just thrown in. They're not even put elastic bands on. Yeah, it's just this is a big pile of money. Yeah, like Gringotts. Yeah, but but what gets me is the Turtle Man doesn't nick any of it. <laughs> no, he nicked a fiver. Did he? He nicked five dollars. <laughs> He's gonna pay for the bus home. <laughs> <laughs> because of course the turtle man would get buses, because as we know, He's they are the <laughs> slowest forms of transport known to man. And also the most horrible. And yes. Flash says the turtle man's plan is in two parts. When he gets to the vault, yeah, doesn't he? The Turtle Man is planning and he'd know that because it's convenient. Yeah, because it's convenient for him to know that. But we, as the reader, never actually learn what the second part is, <laughs> unless it was to break into a bank vault and not steal any of the money, which is the only thing I could come up with to then lose Flash. Yeah, go back to the bank vault. But he doesn't. He doesn't go back to the bank vault, does he? He doesn't lose Flash. I mean, and how did? The slowest man alive get out of the vault because he clearly says there when I saw him I was in the vault I was hidden in the vault and we don't know where because that's quite behind clear. all those stacks behind of money. all those stacks of money all right so how did he get out of the vault spray paint a shadow himself on the wall to make the flash think he was hiding round the corner then get back into the sewers before the fastest man alive could move because uh, actually he has a secret identity of the world's fastest man. Really? Yeah. So, and because he's never met the Flash before. Nobody knows the Flash exists at this yeah. point. Was he carrying a can of spray paint with him? <laughs> just in case this happened? Prepared for every eventuality now. Well, what would happen if in during, the, <laughs> during not robbing this bank... I came across somebody who could run at supersonic speeds. Ah, well, I will carry a can of spray paint with me. Well, when you wake up in the morning, do you not think of every eventuality? I don't become the criminal equivalent of Banksy, no. <laughs> Maybe this is it. Maybe this is... <laughs> this is when Banksy got his start. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what did Turtle Man gain from breaking into this bank vault? He doesn't nick anything. He doesn't do it, he breaks into the vault and then proceeds to steal nothing. Well, what I want to know is why the Turtle Man isn't in the sea. Colour <laughs> Tortoise Man. But even then, Tortoises are pretty bloody fast. Not as fast as the Flash, well, no. presumably. But no, alright, okay. I mean, it does beg the question of how the slowest man alive manages to get down the manhole, through the sewer, sabotage the speedboat, and then take the rowing boat, which seems to have no oars. Did you notice that? <laughs> His rowing boat has no oars. Turtle Man's just sat in his rowing boat. How did he expect this to go anywhere? Was it, did it again, did he anticipate that on 
the off chance that he runs into a man who has supersonic <laughs> speed powers that by running after him on water, this would push his boat forward. This guy is an amazing fortune teller. Why is he wasting time robbing not banks? Ro- not robbing not banks. Not robbing banks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, we do get the flash running on water, which is exceptionally cool. Yeah. I always love the flash running on water. And I love the principle behind if you skim a stone fast enough, it'll bounce on water. And I, I always love that. I thought that, I always thought that was brilliant. It, it obviously, he catches Turtle Man. He spins really fast around the boat, and Turtle Man falls into the sea. Should have been right at home, really. What would have thought? <laughs> That's when he grows these little flippers and swims right. <laughs> Why does he not have like a big shell on his back? <laughs> Where he keeps all his money that he doesn't steal. Jimmy Olsen's renting it. <laughs> Jimmy Olsen was suing for copyright infringement. <laughs> uh, as with Superman the movie, the uh, the press nicknamed him the Flash, which is very strange given that he was influenced by a comics character called the Flash. Yeah. You'd think he would have said, I'm called The Flash, or something <laughs> like that. But we know the guy from the press, because he has a huge card stuck out of the ribbon as fedora that just says, press. <laughs> <laughs> I believe they did dress like that at one point. <laughs> I'm in the press, see? But, a wise guy, huh? <laughs> yeah, it seems a, bit, um, seems a bit silly in the cold light of 2013. I, I mean, we've sat here taking the mick out of this for the past five minutes, but um, I actually thought this was a really rather fun story mm. that manages to cram a great deal into 12 pages. It handles the introduction of the character, the origin of the character, his job, his girlfriend, his inspiration, and halfway through his first case against the slowest man alive. For people that think Stan Lee originated irony in comics, we are gifted with Barry Allen wondering what it would be like to be the fastest man alive before being bestowed with powers that grant that very wish. The fastest man alive versus the slowest man on earth, plus... A girlfriend who ponders how exciting it would be to meet a man like that to Barry. <laughs> there are negatives, of course. The Flash would go on to have one of the best rogues galleries in comics, and yet it comes as no surprise that the Turtle Man does not make that list. And whilst his motivations for being a hero are pretty understandable, his costume pretty much comes out of nowhere, as does his ability to make a ring that can compress that costume to minuscule levels. I'll give the ring a pass, though, because I think it's one of the coolest accoutrements in comics. The Turtle Man part of the story is easily the weakest, but does introduce many of the cooler aspects of the Flash's powers. His ability to run down a wall, on water, and the events around him slowing to a crawl when we see things from his point of view. And all in all, this was a good introduction to the character. It is a typical Silver Age tale in that it's very plot-heavy, and the origin and motivations are dispatched within less than seven pages. The art, which I've not talked about much, is excellent, although it only occasionally looks like Infantino, perhaps due to Kubert's inking. I actually thought this bore more of a resemblance to Steve Ditko than to Carmine Infantino. Mm. But, you know. Especially the panel where Barry does see all of the food falling. That's a Ditko panel, dude. Yeah. That's totally Ditko. What did you think of this Silver Age story, Michael? I really liked it. It's excellent, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But um, the art's really good in it as well. Especially compared to what we're going to do next. Uh, the, the, you know lots. Of, send your hate mail, too. Yeah, yeah. But the art and the, the story itself is a lot better than the next issue. Yeah. That's fair enough. No, uh, that's a valid comment. Well, I, I just think that um, art-wise... With a few exceptions, at this point in time, DC were better than Marvel. That's because Marvel didn't exist in 1959. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. The Silver Age. Although, 
Marvel did exist. He were called Timely at this point. Yeah. And Ditko would have been working for him and Don Heck, probably, and some Jack Kirby stuff. Yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I thought this was absolutely fantastic. Lovely little story. It's the Silver Age, so it's easy to take the mick out of it, but it doesn't. that doesn't take away from the enjoyment of reading it. No. And I thought this was an absolutely wonderful little story. I really did enjoy it. Schwartz's changes to The Flash would give the character a new lease of life and his series would run through issue 350 when it was cancelled due to low sales and Barry Allen was killed off in the Crisis on Infinite Earths in 1959. The costume design and general attitude to storytelling are, however, still with us today. Writer of Crisis on Infinite Earths, Marla Wolfman, said in Comics Interview that they wanted to give Barry's story a definite end point to prevent people from bringing him back. This being comics, Barry Allen is now resurrected and back in the red and yellow. For those that cur, the other stories in this issue of the superheroes were the Batman story Marriage Impossible and Superman The Man Who Murdered the Earth. And after Michael has teased yeah. the Marvel pick for tonight's inaugural Silver Age show, we will leap into that very comic. DC do have an advantage over Marvel in terms of Silver Age output, having as they do a good five years of work before what is considered as the start of the Marvel Age of Comics, the 1961 launch of the Fantastic Four. I didn't want to cover that epoch-making as it was, as I've already done it on Fantastic Cast. I suppose I could have just dug out my old notes. Would have saved me some time, wouldn't it? So, this did leave me in something of a quandary. As per usual, I had made myself a fairly arbitrary set of rules that I set for myself in this particular series, and was trying to go for, in most cases, like for like, as far as the stories that we do and compare and contrast. With that notion, it seemed fairly obvious that the best way to complement a story where an old concept is dusted off, updated and revived for a new audience was to look at a story where an old concept is dusted off, updated and revived for a new audience. Seemed perfectly logical to me. Yeah. Created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby in 1941, Captain America is, as I've said before, a favourite character of mine. And after the huge success of the Fantastic Four and various other characters, the architects of the Marvel Universe, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, two other men that would no doubt be near the top of that aforementioned most important men in comics list, were always, like Schwartz, looking out for new ideas or the recycling of ideas that they could pass off as new. And after a tryout in Strange Tales 114, Lee and Kirby resurrected the hero of World War II in all new adventures. Perhaps one of the best and most well-known of all Marvel Comics covers adorns Avengers issue 4, as Captain America lives again. Captain America, who a lot of readers of this era I presume wouldn't have known, runs towards the reader as Giant Man the Wasp Thor and Iron Man bring up the rear. Also in this sensational issue, the Submariner, says the cover copy, and there's a little inset of Namor, but really this is Cap's cover. And artists Jack Kirby and George Russos really do an excellent job of making this a standout piece. Avengers issue 4 came out with a March 1964 cover date. I did like that the corner box was quite cute as well. Thor and Iron Man just Thor headshot, advertising shampoo, no doubt. With his hair, because you're worth it. Iron Man stood there, kind of clenching. There's a headshot of the Hulk, who at this point was considered part of the Avengers. He has a really bad ball cut. He does have a really bad Beatles cut, doesn't yeah. he? And uh, he's a lovable mop top, the Hulk. And uh, Giant Man is holding the wasp on his hand. Which, uh, that's, that's the bit that I thought was quite cute. You know the cover? Yes. Right? It's iconic. Yes. But... Yes. 
look at Captain America's shield and that'll ruin the entire thing for you. Yeah, the shield is completely wrong. It looks see-through. And, for a start. and it's really disproportionate. Yes, it's really disproportionate to how he's holding it. Because it does look like his hand would just disappear into the shield, yeah. doesn't it? So, the see-through shield would actually be resurrected later when Dan Jurgens was doing Cap. I wonder if yeah. that's where he got the idea from. He had an energy shield, didn't he? Was it Dan Jurgens or was it Mark Wade's second run? I'm not sure. His shield got broken, tossed into the sea, didn't it? And so they gave him this energy shield, which I don't think anyone ever liked. <laughs> it was quickly got rid of, if memory serves. Anyway. Captain America joins the Avengers! A tale destined to become a magnificent milestone in this, the Marvel Age of Comics. Bringing you the great superhero which your wonderful avalanche of fan mail demanded. Gloriously written by Stan Lee. Grandly illustrated by Jack Kirby. Gallantly lettered by Art Symak. We sincerely suggest you save this issue. We feel you will treasure it in years to come. That would become very prophetic, wouldn't it? Yeah. As this is one of the most eagerly searched for comics in the Silver Age. The some Avengers! Guy just, oh, sorry. Some guy just goes and make a little statue out of it. Oh, God, yeah, that guy who made a statue by ripping up a copy of Avengers 4. You just want to smack him, don't you? <laughs> the Avengers' duel with Namor comes to an abrupt end when the King of the Seas flees to discover his loyal subjects in Atlantis have deserted him. Taking his rage out on a group of isolated tribesmen in the Arctic, Namor hurls the idol they worship into the sea and petulantly skulks off. Inside the frozen idol, however, is the form of a man, and as the idol falls, the Avengers submarine happens upon it and brings the man into the ship. The wasp immediately recognises the costume of Captain America, who has been long thought dead after World War II. Cap tells the tale of he and Bucky trying to deactivate a drone plane, a mission that ended with Bucky's death, and he was flung to some kind of suspended animation. The Avengers return to New York docks, but in the middle of a press conference are all turned to stone. Amazingly, the reporters think this is a mere prank, and when Cap emerges from the sub, he thinks they are statues in honour of the Avengers. Passers-by are pleased to see him and he them, especially the pretty girls, but fatigued, he withdraws to a hotel. There, he is found by Rick Jones, who so looks like Bucky, Cap considers it miraculous. Rookie informs Cap the Avengers have disappeared, and Cap figures out, through pictures taken at the scene, that someone in the crowd aimed a weapon at the team. Ricky gets his teen brigade buddies on the horn, and they quickly locate the man in the photo, and tell Cap, who accosts the man in his hotel room. After a brief battle with some hired guns, Cap learns the man is actually an alien stick of celery, trapped on this world for many years, and, due to his floppy hair, is actually the origin of the legend of Medusa. His ship is crashed underwater, and the submariner has promised he will free it if he turns the Avengers to stone. Cap has Celery Man turn the Avengers back to normal, and they free his ship using an irresistible concentration of magnetic waves emanating from Thor's mighty Uru Hammer. Suddenly, Neymar, who has conveniently found some Atlanteans with nothing better to do, attacks. The fight is pretty evenly matched until Neymar produces a hostage out of nowhere, Rick Jones, otherwise known as Liability. Before anything can be made of this, so one wonders why it was even introduced, Celery Man's starship blasts off into space, causing Neymar to think a giant tsunami will destroy his foes for him. And he just leaves, because it's page 22 of a 23-page story. With the danger past, for now, Captain America is welcomed into the ranks of the Avengers. Uh, the splash page to this comic is exceptionally dull. Yeah. Cap walks into a room 
where it looks like the Avengers are judging him. I expected to see Simon Cowell just <laughs> off panel. It could be an audition for America's Got Superheroes, couldn't it? Yeah. And with a giant man going, what's your talent, buddy? <laughs> and Cap's just strutting in and the Wasp's like, well, you could, you could do something a little with your costume. Yeah, the, the Wasp giving him critiques on his costume. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> his costume is so 1940s. It is, it is indeed, yes. I still love Neymar. I think Neymar's fantastic. <laughs> I absolutely, I love him. I, yes, he's petulant and arrogant and full of Marvel self-pity, but there is good points, I think. He's, he's something endearing about him. I mean, granted, he doesn't serve any purpose in this story at yeah. all, does he? The only reason he exists is to give the Avengers someone to fight. And there's none of the, I don't, yet I must, melodrama of his clashes with the Fantastic Four. As Susan Storm's not here to give him the horn. So, I still love him, but he doesn't really serve much of a function, does he? No. He's here to be petulant and arrogant. Yes. Which he does very well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's, let's be honest. <laughs> if you want a character in your comic to be petulant and arrogant, who's first on your list? Yeah. I did like that the last time Stan and Jack pulled this trick of reviving a Golden Age character, it was Neymar yeah. in the Fantastic Four, and Johnny Storm found him in a flop house, didn't he? Mm. And here... It's Namor that returns the favour by reviving Cap, even though Namor doesn't know it. Yeah. Namor doesn't know that it's Captain America. Well, they kind of fixed it now so that they make a big deal out of Namor finding him first. Do they? Has that been retconned yeah. somewhere along the line? Right. I think I've only ever read this. And because of their days and the invaders. Yeah, well, I'm going to mention that later on, so we may as well talk about it now. Cap was in the Evaders with Submariner, yet yeah. doesn't seem to remember very much about him. <laughs> yeah. Sub- suspended animation gives you selective amnesia, does it? Yeah. <laughs> he remembers what you want him to remember <laughs> at any for purposes of plot. Yes. And if you don't want him to remember it for purposes of plot... And he was frozen. Then he, then he forgets, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. I wonder if he pulls that trick with girls. <laughs> oh, I'm amnesia, dude. I don't remember you. <laughs> Some woman comes up to me in 1916 and introduces a 20-year-old as his son. And Cap's all like, you can't prove that. <laughs> DNA testing doesn't exist yet. I, I don't remember. So. <laughs> Amnesia. Suspended animation. <laughs> um, the art is credited to just Jack Kirby. No Inca. And I thought it was quite good throughout. Mm. I presume you will have a different opinion on that. Early Jack Kirby. So you're not a fan, are you? Not really. What do you not like about it? He looks really bad. See, I don't agree with I think the art in this was really good. It's it's serviceable and dynamic, but as as uh, comic art, it's not great. Alright, fair enough. I like it. I think it's perfect. His DC stuff's better. As you keep saying. His early Marvel stuff is just really... He does grow in leaps and bounds. It's, it's like he knows where he's going, he's just... Not quite there yet. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. I don't agree with you, but alright. It's like he's drawing with his left hand, unless he's left-handed, <laughs> in which case... He's, he's drawing with Oh, send your hate mail too. <laughs> I like it, I think. I like the roughness of it. And I do think this is an interesting thing to talk about when you're comparing DC versus Marvel. Yeah. The art in the Flash story was gorgeous, but it was very slick and, and very art competent. Yeah. Jack Kirby's art was rough and ready, and his characters were ugly. Oh, yeah. And it's like, that's what set Marvel apart, I thought. Ugly characters. Yeah, I thought that made it more interesting. Yeah. Let's be honest, not everybody looks like a supermodel. And what? in Jack Kirby's comics, people don't look like supermodels. There's that as well. He, he, he must have been sat there in his chair going, you know what, how can I make Namor look even stronger? I know, I'll give him muscles in his armpits. <laughs> what? <laughs> he does a lot of swimming, dude. 
He's the, he's the what's his name? He's the, the Tingy O'Daly of comic <laughs> books. I've forgotten his first name. What's his name? That swimmer guy. That Did swimmer dude. Tim Daly. No, Tim Daly voices Superman. Did he? Yeah. Tom Daly. Tom Daly. <laughs> Tom Daly's the swimmer. Tim Daly voices Superman. All comes back to Superman. It all comes back to Superman, yeah. Mike Bailey, love that. <laughs> Stan ladles on the Marvel angst the minute Cap wakes up, doesn't he? He has him waking up. The first thing he does is yell for Bucky! Look out! Implying that to him, no time has passed. Yeah. Which is a story point I will come to later on. <laughs> right. In, within the next two panels, yeah. <laughs> he's well enough to take down a god, yeah. and Iron Man and Giant Man. He's perfectly fine, you know. I, I love that. He's just woke up at cemented animation and he just <laughs> takes out the Avengers. He's, he's perfectly fine. You know, he doesn't have, like, like f- first thing in the morning grogginess. No, he's oh, I need a coffee. He's he like, wakes up and kicks the crap out of the god of Asgard. <laughs> yeah. God of Thunder. And to be fair, he doesn't actually go toe-to-toe with Iron Man or Cap. No, but or Thor. But he's like, well, how do we know you're really Captain America? Go on, try me, go on, yeah, come on, take him. <laughs> try me, I'll punch your lights out, you <laughs> blonde he's a, he's a five-year-old kid who's just had sugar. <laughs> Too much sugar, man. Yoan's <laughs> <laughs> um, giant, man. I'll give him that. He doesn't go toe-to-toe. But yeah, yeah, he wakes up, and the next thing you know, he's punching the crap out of everybody. <laughs> Which seems fair enough. And then he has this little moment of self-reflection where he bemoans that he can never forget what it's like to be Captain America. And I thought this was going a little bit too far for Cap. Because he's a, he's a Marvel character. Yeah, I mean, he's angst-ridden, yes, because without that, he isn't a Marvel character. But he's not the Silver Surfer, is he? <laughs> and he's, oh, humanity, how you disappoint me at every turn. That's not Cap. <laughs> but yeah, he does have this moment of, of who am I? For a moment I had almost forgotten myself, but I am not lucky enough to forget. Forever. To forget I was once the man called Captain America. And he makes it sound like he's this huge bird <laughs> being Captain America, doesn't he? Yeah. But then in a couple of pages it's like, oh yeah, chicks, come on, I'm Captain America. <laughs> Bring on the pretty girls! <laughs> uh, page seven. We do get the origin of Cap after the war and what happened to him. I actually found this was probably the best page of the issue. Still very powerful stuff, although Bucky now seems to be a blonde for some reason. I presume that's just a colouring error. Mm. Oddly, Stan doesn't recap Cap's origin at all, does he? Yeah. And he, he won't until Cap is giving his solo stripping tales to suspense. And even then, readers will have to wait until four months after he first appeared in Strange Tales in issue 63 before they get his origin. Now, originally, Cap wasn't given an end point, so this is a retcon, and it's all pretty new. Bucky lived through the war initially, and even fought the good fight in some Captain America comics in the 50s. But Stan, probably feeling Cap was more of a DC, died-in-the-wool hero type, and needed some of that Marvel self-loathing, grafted the Bucky death onto Cap's backstory. Given that we never saw what happened to Bucky, and ignoring the 50s stories, which lasted less than a year anyway, this worked quite well, giving Cap a loss to contend with, which sets him up as firmly being a Marvel character. Without this, he is a, he's a DC character, isn't he? Yeah. He's a guy who does the right thing because it's the right thing to do, which is a very DC trope. I do have a question, though. If Cap was in suspended animation, which he was, because he wakes up as if no time has passed for him, uh, he presumably knows what suspended animation is because as a kid he watched Butt Rogers. Right. Because the serials, right. How does he know the Eskimos worshipped him? Because that implies that he was conscious 
throughout being in suspended animation. Which, which, which you can't have been. As well. well, even if it froze him in such a way and only his consciousness was kept alive, why did he wake up screaming for Bucky as if no time had passed? Yeah. That didn't make any sense to me. Which kind of implied Stan wasn't paying attention. No. But then again, didn't Stan make <laughs> it up as he went along? Evidently. <laughs> yes. Page eight. These are the most useless reporters on planet Earth. In front of their very eyes, a major story happens. The Avengers are stoned. Yeah. In front of them. The headline writes itself, Avengers, stoned. You can see the copy of Tomorrow's Daily Bugle, can't you? And yet these guys, they just go, oh, it's a gag. They just didn't want to talk to us. They completely ignore that four stone statues have appeared exactly where the Avengers were just seconds before. To them, this isn't a story. They just go, oh, you want to go to the pub, Bill? <laughs> That's enough, they go. With the, with the, with the uh, headline, like, Avengers Stone, like, oh, we were just inspired, man, <laughs> says, says fellow New York drugger. Oh, dear God. No, that, that bit, just, I didn't get that at all. You go all this way for an interview and they pull this crummy trick on us. There's a story right in front of you! Hey, look, is that a celery month? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I didn't buy this at all. And then Cap comes out. <laughs> oh, really? they got statues? Yeah, and he just thinks... Pretty cool blokes, I just beat up. Yeah, he just thinks <laughs> the statues of the Avengers in the middle of a walkway. Yeah, just going, ah! <laughs> Why would you do a statue of someone going, no! <laughs> That's very ridiculous. And I, but I did love, first thing Captain America does when he gets on land, he's eye up the girls. Yeah. <laughs> But then he, he doesn't check New York out, he goes straight to a hotel and sleep. Despite the fact that for the past 20 or so years he's been asleep. Um, well, he does a bit of... He walks past the UN building, because he's, he's marvelling that that's a magnificent structure and the world's flags <laughs> are around It's a shame it. the people inside aren't all that great. Well, there is that. And then he meets with a copper who uh, says, I saw you once as a kid, I never forgot it. And then he starts crying. But I thought that was lovely. Yeah. I thought that was really quite sweet. The cop goes, forgive me, Cap, I have something in my eye. (laughs) And he's crying, and Captain America just wrapped up in his own self-pity and doesn't actually go, you're all right, mate, do you want an autograph or something? I'll pause for a picture. There's all these reporters standing around doing nothing now because <laughs> yeah. they've not noticed that this story just happened in front of them. Yeah. Hey, I'll take a photo. In fact, look, Captain America just shows up. Yeah, no one cares. No one cares. The reporters don't think that's a story. They're all chasing the salary, man. <laughs> or they all just want to go to the pub on company time. <laughs> that's, the, that's where I'm going for. So two stories have just happened in front of the eyes of these reporters and they've all just gone, eh, screw it, let's go for a drink. <laughs> Uh, we can claim the money back in expenses. <laughs> <laughs> Crappiest reporters ever. Um, we've not covered a lot of Rick Jones on this show, thankfully. But here stands snarky, irrelevant dialogue has the opposite effect and just makes him come across as a real ass. Yeah, but reading this reminded me of the Stalin stuff. The Strankov stuff. The, yeah, the Strankov Yeah, where, where Ricky is under this misguided impression <laughs> that, uh, oh, Cap wants me as a partner. He totally wants me as a partner. He totally wants me. <laughs> He's, he was going to ask me to be his partner. And you're kind of thinking, Cap's not thinking about you at all, dude. But in this, he's just like, oh, hey, hey, you want to be my partner? You, wanna be, you look just like him. You could be him. I'm sure. yeah, that's the criteria now. You look like him. I've got his costume in my wardrobe if you want it. <laughs> I carry it around with me everywhere I go. <laughs> but I didn't want to 
don't get is why he just books into a hotel and goes to sleep. Yeah. That's the first thing he'd do. How does he pay for that? Yeah, it's... Well, has Cap got his money? I mean, even if he had some money, it's 1940s money, he's probably got $5 <laughs> on him, which to him will have been a lot. Yeah. He'll rock up at a hotel in 1964 and they'll go, $5? You are kidding, right? Well, how did and he... we won't let you use the toilet for $5, dude. How does he know where to go? <laughs> well, presumably there was a hotel there in 1944. With a big size hotel. Yeah, well, that'll give it away as well. <laughs> you know, New York's full of hotels. But did he just walk in and go charge it to the Avengers? Which is a bit presumptuous of him. But alright, fair enough. We'll, we'll cut that some slack. Uh, page 11, we're introduced to the Teen Brigade, which are a bunch of teenagers put together by Rick to keep their eyes open and report on suspicious Hulk-shaped activity. I really couldn't be bothered doing any more research than that about the Teen Brigade. Couldn't give a rat's ass about it. Well, it's an idea um, Kirby will carry over with him to DC. What, with Jimmy Olsen? Yeah. Right, and the... Um, Yo, God, yeah, big brain and yeah. big words and all that stuff in the fourth world, isn't it? Yeah. News by Legion. Yes. News by Legion predates that. News by Legion were a 1940s concept, weren't they? Were they? So maybe he's importing News by Legion into Marvel with the Team Brigade. Yeah. Or maybe this was a Stan idea that just never went anywhere because it wasn't very good. As somebody who's read and watched a fair bit of investigative fiction, I would like somebody to explain to me exactly how Captain America found the man who stoned the Avengers. We see the Team Brigade follow lots of people, right? But none of them turn out to be the right guy. And then the next panel, Cap just shows up at his hotel. Yeah. How the hell did Cap work that out? He's got a picture, and it says, it's him, it's the one we're after. But yeah, that's great. How did you find him? Well, maybe Cap, in his, you know, going around into every hotel in New York. Every hotel in New York? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or, by pure coincidence, they're in the same hotel. Yeah. That totally works, but that's never mentioned, is it? It's just, how did you find this guy, Cap? And it's, you know, we'll gloss over that and hope people don't mention And you do have the thing that fa- later on we'll find that Celery Man yeah. is, a, is an innocent pawn in this story, isn't he? Mm. If that's the case, why is he sitting in his hotel polishing his gun? And why are all these gunmen hanging around with him? <laughs> Especially seeing as on the very next page... We find out that they know nothing about what's going on or play any part in the story. Yeah. I don't think he's that as innocent as he makes out. <laughs> I think he's up to something. He just wanted to get off the planet so that he could return to his own race and blow up the planet. Oh, yeah, blow up us. Stone everyone. <laughs> A different kind of stoned, I think. Um, Whoa, this celery's talking to me, man. Yeah, we learned that Celery Man was the, um, the basis for the Medusa legend. Yeah. Why the hell was that introduced? <laughs> It serves no purpose. Because why not? It is not mentioned anywhere else. And I'm sure Medusa, the inhuman, would probably have something to say about it, just from a, a namesake point of view. Page 15, I do like that Cap vaguely remembers the submariner. Yeah. Namor's not a forgettable guy. <laughs> He's got pointed ears, huge eyebrows, and a massive ego. And doesn't know how to put his pants on. And he only wears trunks. <laughs> I remember him, especially if I fought with him against the Nazis. But Cap's like, wow, if only we had more of him in World War II. What about the Human Torch, dude? Yeah. You had an entire fighting team in World War II of superpowered individuals. Selective suspended animation. Well, easy. maybe you wanted them all to be, you know, pantsless. <laughs> You're saying Cap will only fight with people who you are, who are swinging low. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, page 15 as well. I do love that Celery Man restores the Avengers by reversing the polarity. Is <laughs> this of the neutron flow, flow by any chance? 
And also on this page, is this the first usage of the word mutant? Stan actually has the Submariner refer to himself as the most powerful mutant on Earth. Definitely. So Submariner is the first mutant, because the X-Men haven't appeared yet. Fair enough. Which he is, because he's a... Technically, he's a hybrid, isn't he? Yeah. He's the first Atlantean human. But I suppose you could argue he has his powers from birth, so he's a mutant. But my understanding of mutant is the parents are humans, normal humans, and then they have the mutant gene. Yeah. Is my understanding. So technically, I wouldn't say he was a mutant, but he's referred to as, so I would imagine that Marvel have have cashed in on that at every available opportunity. (laughs) Uh, After this, Celery Man takes the Avengers to a deserted island where his ship is stranded just offshore. Why did he take Rick with them? Uh, um, it's a day out. <laughs> He's got nothing else he to do. He nags them and... <laughs> Constantly. The, the parents, his parents are at work and he needs someone to look after him. <laughs> so Thor's like, oh, go on, I'll babysit. <laughs> My turn, is it? Verily, thou doth a waste of time, Brick. You can hear him crying at night on the baby monitor and they'll argue <laughs> with each other as who goes and checks on You them. brought him, Cap. <laughs> Alright, fair enough, I'll, I'll do it like that. Uh, Thor's hammer can apparently emit magnetic waves with a strong enough pull that they wrench an almost fully buried starship from the ocean floor. How did that work then, Ted? He's a, he's a god. <laughs> no explanation needed. Although I do love Thor's cocky arrogance mm. on the next page. It worked, you freed the ship, Thor! And Thor's like, was that not my intention? You smug get. Why does Iron Man look really surprised with that mask all the time? <laughs> That's his surprised face. <laughs> his surprised mask. <laughs> he has He's a different got different, different facial expressions. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that would be really cool. <laughs> Happy mask. Sad mask. <laughs> like drama masks. <laughs> oh. The fight scene at the end of the issue is really quite exciting and dynamic. Iron Man versus Namor is pretty cool, with neither one of them gaining the upper hand. And Namor even goes toe-to-toe with Thor. And this always does cause the the conversations that we as comic book fans love. Who would win in a fight between Namor and Thor? Yeah. Ultimately, I think I'd put my money on Thor. Yeah. But Namor's pretty strong. He'd probably take an Iron Man, I think. Mm. But I think Thor would probably ultimately have the upper hand, but that's just my opinion. Uh, I've never realised before as well, Giant Man and the Wasp get their powers from taking drugs. Yeah. They keep popping pills, don't they, all the way through this story. I must shrink, take a pill. (laughs) I must grow large, take a pill. In fact, Hank Pym invented Viagra. (laughs) I must grow large, take a pill. (laughs) Maybe that's where his deep-rooted hatred of the Wasp came from, and that's why he turned into a woman hater. (laughs) Good (laughs) pill. We're being pithy. I don't really think that at all. Cap's very confident that he can beat Neymar in that panel. Neymar picks him up and throws him across the island. And Cap just thinks, he's stronger than me, but I'll find a way to outmaneuver him. (laughs) Which is one of the most iconic never-say-die-Cap panels in comics. Mm. I actually quite like that. It is slightly ridiculous. Cap hurls... Cap, sorry. Neymar hurls him across the island, and Cap really has no leverage (laughs) and no basis to be able to do anything. But he's so confident that he will get the upper hand, which is Captain America. I I think that's pretty cool. Page 23. Don't let Frederick Wortham see this panel, because Cap rescues Rick and says, Easy, lad, it's safe now. And Iron Man says, I noticed it took a threat to a boy to bring you into action, fella. And Cap's all, what are you trying to imply? And Iron Man, I didn't mean anything by it. And then Cap throws him into the sea where he rusts. And sinks to the bottom of the ocean. (laughs) I don't remember any 
something like that. No, it didn't, but it would have been better if it did. <laughs> uh, and then you've got Rick, who in the last two panels, you get this really glorious pa- third panel from the end, Pen Penultimate. Yeah. Panel where Cap's sworn into the Avengers and they all hold hands. Well, they all do that hand. They don't Power hold hands. Yeah. <laughs> Power Rangers swearing of oath. And then you get two panels at the end that bring the story really down to a Debbie Downer. Well, where Rick's that. just sat there going, oh, boy, we do those last two panels imply that the Avengers left Rick on the island? One can only hope. <laughs> and he spends the next five years learning to be Oliver Queen. <laughs> um, and Rick's very presumptuous in these last two panels. He's sure... Cap wants to make him his partner for no reason than self-entitlement. Because Rick Jones is the most important man in the world. And then he's concerned that the Hulk will show up and he'll discover Cap has replaced him in his affections. And what will happen then? And I thought the Hulk will probably think, good riddance. Why is Rick Jones in a lady's own little love triangle with Captain American Hulk? That they know nothing about. He's like an internet forum stalker before there was internet forums, isn't he? Oh, I love you, Cap and, and, and Hulk, and you will never know the depth of my feelings. He's got posters up in his wall. Yeah. And he writes love poetry. He, he picks flowers with I love Thor, I love Hulk, I love Captain America. He makes a daisy chain. He wants me as his partner, he wants me not. No, he doesn't. If he's got any brains. Um... Very much a game of two halves. And one of the few times I feel that a retelling and expansion of an origin is called for. For the first half, this is a really rather well-told tale of the return of Captain America, what happened to him after the war, and the ramifications of his legacy. But it swiftly turns into a massive slugfest in the mighty Marvel manner. Rick is irritating. How Cap finds the man who stoned the Avengers is too easy and rather implausible. The teen brigade are always unwelcome. And having essentially saved the day, Cap just stands around during the final battle until Rick is brought in as a really rather ill-thought-out hostage. There's also just too many things happening, and none of them are adequately explained. Like, when did name a contact celery man? Has this plan been planned for a while, or was it a spur-of-the-moment thing? Why were the Avengers taking the submarine out for a spin? Was it just a Sunday afternoon drive? I mean, the obvious answer is they were specifically looking for Namor after the fight at the beginning of the issue. But this is never mentioned. Given the sheer amount of people around as well, it's not only implausible that no one but the Avengers were stoned, but that everyone would just think this was a practical joke and pay it no never mind was just daft. How did Cap pay for his hotel room? How long did it take the team brigade to find Celery Man? And exactly how did they do that if he's just sat up in his hotel room minding his own business? If he's an innocent Celery Man, why is he sat in a room polishing his huge weapon surrounded by armed thugs that were nothing to do with the plot? Why is the Medusa stuff even mentioned when its relevance is nil? Is there nothing that Thor's hammer can't do? How exactly did Iron Man use magnetism on Namor? The human body isn't magnetic. How exactly did Namor know about Rick Jones and why did he take him hostage? Why does Namor think that a tsunami will just wipe out the Avengers but not bother to stick around and check? (laughs) There's just too many unanswered questions, isn't there? Yeah. What did you think of it? Um, I thought it was one of those iconic and memorable issues that had a great impact on stories in the future. When you actually go back and read it, you only find out that what was so groundbreaking only lasted a page, and the rest of it is... <laughs> and the rest of it just isn't very good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I pretty much 
thought the same thing as you. I, I honestly think that um, without the bringing back of Captain America element, this isn't actually all that good, is it? No. Um, as with The Flash at DC, Captain America became a cornerstone of the Marvel Universe, eventually becoming the leader of the Avengers and being granted his own title. More recently, he's a major movie star, thanks to the really rather excellent Captain America the First Avenger movie and the sequel, The Winter Soldier, has already been filmed for release next year. You've not seen a trailer yet for it, have you? I have not, oh. and I do not plan to until I see the film. Okay. All right. In covering comics like this, I think we try to give them a fur crack of the whip, don't we? And judge them in the spirit of the times and in the context of other comics in this period. And to be fair, there is a lot to like about Avengers number four. Cap's alienation is nicely handled and Stan dollops on a nice amount of Marvel's trademark angst onto the Cap character to make him a Marvel hero. But there's just too many holes in this story as event is piled upon event with little rhyme or reason. Is it a fun issue? Yes. The fight scenes are cool, if illogical, and Cap is a very interesting character, and I loved that he's got that eye for the girls. That's funny, because miniskirts will have been in, so Cap will have been like, hey, (laughs) when he saw them. But more could and would in the future be made of his man-out-of-time shtick. But as we've just discussed, if this didn't have the iconic presence of Captain America, and this wasn't the issue that brought him back into the Marvel Universe proper, I really doubt that this would be held up as a classic comic. Mm. So, what's the verdict on this first week of Silver Age classics? Flash was better. Is that your... Is that it? Yeah, well, neither were as ridiculous as the era's reputation would have you believe. Uh... They weren't really. They weren't as stupid as we are supposed to think all Silver Age comics are, thanks to websites like Super Dickery. Yeah. Are they? And they were both exceptionally entertaining while I was reading them. While I was reading them, I was enjoying them. And it is one of those things I wouldn't have picked apart Avengers for if I was just reading it for pleasure. Yeah. I would have read it and thought, it's very much a story of its time, and I put it back on the shelf and probably enjoyed it. But essentially, DC... DC's the old TV show Mission Impossible... It's very plot-heavy and intriguing, but the character is a little two-dimensional. Marvel was Star Trek. It's heavy on character and character interplay, with the actual plot being secondary. However, I felt the DC story held up better than the Marvel one did to close scrutiny, with only a few head-scratching moments versus the entire second half of the Marvel comic being one huge what-the. And all that being said, I'm going to go with you. I think this week we're going to have to give a win to DC, Mm -hmm. in this case. Anyway, lovely listener, feel free to email in and tell us what you thought. Yeah. Dig these or shows up. They are very well re-reprinted. Yeah. Both of them are probably quite easy to find. Uh, and next week, we've got Green Lantern versus Thor, Silver Age style. We hope you will join us for that, and let us know what you thought of this week's show. Who do you think would win the fight? Between Green Lantern and Thor? Yeah. Green Lantern... No, Thor. Green Lantern. Do you? Yeah. Why? Okay, now that they've gotten really yellow, what can be Green Lantern? Thor. He's got his ring that can make anything. Thor, get the shit out of him. Unbreakable shield. <laughs> yeah. So he just hides himself in a bubble. Yeah. And just lets Thor pound on him. Tie Thor out and then you put the punch in. Alright, fair enough. I still think Thor would win. But what if you have an opinion on that, lovely listener? Because who would win in the fight between is the best thing about comics. Yeah. Isn't it? It's totally the best thing about comics. Uh, I will see you next week. We'll be back for more Silver Age shininess. We hope you'll join us. Bye-bye. Goodbye.